Welcome to Tales of a Children's Doctor, a podcast which outlines a life spent working with children and tells the stories of some amazing children and their families. I'm Chris. Please come and join me. Episode 12, Leaving Glasgow. I was really pleased to be coming back to York Hill. I looked forward to regular exposure to child neurology and to the great responsibility that I would have. Shortly after arriving back, however, I was contacted and told that there was no senior registrar available to cover the paediatric cardiology ward. As we discussed in episode 2, I had been attached to paediatric cardiology as a senior house officer, but other than when on call, I'd had little to do with them since. I was asked if I'd be willing to provide the senior registrar ward cover for cardiology for a period of six months, until a new senior registrar was appointed. After some discussion, we agreed that I would cover the inpatient cardiology for six months, but that I would be able to do outpatient paediatric neurology clinics, and would, of course, continue with my general paediatric on-call commitments. To be honest, I wasn't too happy to be covering paediatric cardiology but I soon realised that at a more senior level this was a much more interesting specialty than I'd previously considered. Like child neurology, there was the opportunity to form long-term relationships, and the children with the congenital heart problems were delightful. Their families shared the same hopes and fears that the families of the neurology patients did, and they understood many of the preconceived notions and stigma that applied to that group of children. As ever, the most acutely unwell children seemed to arrive at night. I was on call one evening when my registrar contacted me to say that he'd received a call from one of the outlying neonatal units. They urgently wanted to send in a baby who was five days old. The story was that the baby had been delivered by caesarean section, but had been very well at birth. Over the previous 24 hours, he'd become unwell and now appeared to be frankly blue. The medical term is cyanosed. He was still fairly active, but feeding had deteriorated. The doctors in the referring unit were concerned that there was a cardiac cause for the problem. The baby, Tom, arrived in the hospital around 8 o'clock in the evening. He was accompanied by his father. As he had been delivered by caesarean section, his mother had to remain in the local maternity unit. As soon as I saw Tom, it was obvious that he was very blue. I examined him thoroughly. Other than being blue and having a very soft heart murmur, there was little else to find. It was immediately obvious to me that this was well beyond my ability to deal with, and I called the on-call paediatric cardiology consultant, who immediately came into the hospital. He examined Tom and found very much the same as me. He then undertook an echocardiogram. This is an ultrasound study of the heart. The echocardiogram confirmed what we both suspected, that this baby had a condition known as transposition of the great arteries. This is a congenital disorder, which is very much what it says on the tin. Instead of the aorta, which is the main artery supplying oxygenated blood to the body, coming from the left ventricle, and the pulmonary artery, which is the artery that goes to the lungs to collect oxygen, being connected to the right ventricle, they were connected the wrong way round with the aorta coming from the right ventricle and the pulmonary artery coming from the left ventricle.
To understand this, it's useful to think about the normal human blood circulation. Normally, deoxygenated blood from the upper and lower halves of the body return to the heart on the right side via large veins called the superior or upper and inferior or lower vena cava. These enter the right atrium, blood passes into the right ventricle and then is pumped under low pressure to the lungs where it collects oxygen and becomes oxygenated blood. This oxygenated blood re-enters the heart on the left side into the left atrium. The oxygenated blood enters the left ventricle and is then pumped around the body under high pressure to supply oxygen to all tissues. Thus, in the normal situation, there is a continuous circuit. Where there is transposition of the great arteries, there are effectively two separate circuits in parallel. On the right side, deoxygenated blood enters the atrium as normal from the superior and inferior vena cavi. This blood passes into the right ventricle, but rather than being pumped to the lungs through the pulmonary artery, it's immediately pumped back around the body without picking up any oxygen from the lungs at all. On the left side, oxygenated blood from the lungs enters the atrium as normal and then passes into the left ventricle. However, because the pulmonary artery is connected to the left ventricle, the oxygenated blood is pumped back around the lungs. As a result, the only part of the baby receiving oxygenated blood is the lungs and no oxygen is being sent to the rest of the body. The baby is therefore blue and will die if the situation is not rectified. These incorrect connections are much less significant while the baby is in the womb because normally all oxygenated blood comes to the right atrium from the placenta. Additionally, there are connections between the right and left sides of the circulation, both between the atria, called the foramen ovale, and between the pulmonary artery and the aorta, called the ductus arteriosus. These connections are extremely important when a baby is born with transposition as they allow some mixing of oxygenated and deoxygenated blood for a short time after birth. However, once these connections close, as would be normal, the baby with transposition will not survive without surgical intervention. I recognise that this is really difficult to visualise from a verbal description, so I will put a diagram of normal fetal circulation and of transposition of the great arteries on my website, childrensdoctortales.co.uk, and on my Facebook page, at Tales of a Children's Doctor, all one word. Let's get back to Tom. Once we realised what the problem was, we spoke to Tom's father about this. This was incredibly difficult for him as he was on his own and he was worrying about both his wife and his baby. It was even more difficult for Tom's mum as she was stuck in a hospital many miles away and couldn't get the information face to face. We did telephone and speak to her and spoke with the obstetric team asking for them to make arrangements for her to be transferred to a unit close to us so that she would be able to come across and visit Tom. This of course couldn't happen immediately and because of Tom's problem, we couldn't afford to wait. We had to explain to Tom's dad that without treatment, Tom would be likely to die, and that treatment needed to be undertaken immediately. We explained what was involved, and he gave consent. 
As soon as Tom was stable and we knew that all of his body chemistry was in balance, he was taken down for a procedure known as cardiac catheterization. This is a procedure in which a small tube is passed up through an artery or a vein in the groin into the heart. This can then be used to inject contrast into the heart to fully understand the nature of the heart abnormality. It also allows measurement of the pressures in different parts of the circulation. Most importantly in this situation, it allows a small balloon to be pulled between the right and the left side of the heart through the closing foramen of Ailey to reopen that connection between the two sides. This then allows mixing of oxygenated blood from the lungs with deoxygenated blood coming back from the rest of the body, meaning that mixed oxygenated and deoxygenated blood is then able to be pumped from the right ventricle around the body. Immediately after this procedure, Tom was less blue and his clinical condition improved markedly. This then allowed the time for a more definitive surgical procedure to be undertaken. We took Tom back up to the ward where his dad was waiting. The cardiology team had rallied around as they always did. Although Tom's dad still looked fraught, it was clear that the support from the team had made a big difference. What really made a difference, though, was Tom arriving back, looking much better than he had before he left. We explained that Tom would need treatment with medication, and that the cardiac surgeon would see him later that day to talk through the next steps of treatment. You can immediately understand that what is required surgically is to correct the mismatch in circulation. Way back in the 1950s, the Canadian cardiac surgeon, Frank Mustard, had realised that the best option would be to switch the blood vessels back around so that the aorta came from the left ventricle and the pulmonary artery came from the right, as would be normal. However, for technical reasons, this operation had not been successful. And prior to the mid-1980s, the vast majority of babies with transposition had a different kind of operation, which effectively switched the circulation at the level of the atria. When I was first introduced to cardiology as an SHO, the common operation used at York Hill was one of these atrial switch procedures, known as the mustard procedure. However, by the time I returned to cardiology as a senior registrar, much work had been undertaken, and this meant that the cardiac surgeons at York Hill were now usually undertaking an arterial switch procedure. This had to be done in the early days of life, as otherwise the left ventricle would not be strong enough to pump blood around the body as, prior to the switch procedure, it would only have been pumping blood through the low-pressure system of the lungs. At the time that Tom was born, most units were really only beginning to use the arterial switch procedure, although nowadays this would be the standard approach. Fortunately, Tom's mum was able to be transferred to the maternity unit on the York Hill site. This meant that she could visit Tom, and that the cardiac surgeon could speak to both Tom's mum and dad to explain the next operation. Like all big heart operations on tiny babies, there were very serious risks, and the knowledge that without surgery Tom would be unlikely to survive, and yet with surgery there was a risk that he might die, weighed heavily on his parents. This was really difficult for both of them, particularly Tom's mom, who was recovering from major surgery herself. We spent a lot of time talking through this with the family and supporting them in their decision-making. The family agreed that the only way forward was to go for the arterial switch procedure. The morning came for the operation. Like the operation on Katie, who we discussed in episode 2, Tom's operation had to be done with the aid of cardiac bypass. 
Even though Tom was a full-grown baby, he still only weighed around 3.5 kilograms, so the surgery was technically extremely tricky. His cardiac surgeon was extremely experienced and highly skilled, and fortunately Tom's operation went well. Immediately after surgery, he was transferred to the intensive care unit, and I was able to see him there with his parents. They looked terrible, but mightily relieved. They knew that Tom wasn't out of the woods yet, but just knowing that he'd survived the operation gave them an enormous boost. Tom had a very stormy time over the next few days, and the intensive care registrar looking after the cardiac patients had little sleep. However, Tom pulled through, and as his sedating medication and ventilation was stopped, he became increasingly active, and, very importantly, remained pink. After a few days, Tom returned to the cardiology ward, where I saw him and his parents regularly. He fared well, gained weight, and was able to go home after a short period of time. Although none of this ever persuaded me to a career in paediatric cardiology, it reinforced my respect for the cardiology team. I saw Tom and his family on several occasions over the next year. He was a bonny baby who grew well and developed normally. It was only when you took his top up and saw the big scar in the centre of his chest that he realised what he'd been through. Let's return to neurology, though. Sophie was a little girl who I'd come across on numerous occasions while I was on call. These were all when she'd been admitted to the hospital because of prolonged epileptic seizures, and had often led to admission to the intensive care unit. Sophie was 10 months old when she was referred to neurology. The reason for the referral was, in fact, the recurrent admissions with prolonged seizure. She was booked in to see me. Sophie attended the appointment with both of her parents. I had met them before, but this was the first time that I really had the opportunity to go through the whole story with them. Sophie's parents told me that she'd been born normally at full term, and there'd been no problems with her around the time of birth. She was a first child, and there was no history of any problems with seizures in the family. Sophie had had her first fit at the age of three months. This was associated with a very high temperature, and the main things that distinguished this fit were that it predominantly affected Sophie's right side, and that it was very prolonged, lasting for over 45 minutes before it was controlled in hospital. On that first occasion, Sophie had only needed treatment in the emergency department, and did not require admission to the intensive care unit. She'd been admitted to hospital and investigated for the cause of her high temperature. It was concluded that the fever was due to a viral infection, and that Sophie had had what is called a febrile convulsion. Sophie's second seizure occurred at the age of four and a half months. Once again, she'd become unwell and had developed a high temperature. Because she'd had a previous prolonged seizure, the family had been given rescue medication, which they could administer at home in the event of a further fit. Accordingly, five minutes into the seizure, the family gave Sophie the rescue medication, but her seizure didn't slow down. The family therefore immediately called for an ambulance, and she was brought to the emergency department. Once again, Sophie needed intravenous therapy in the emergency department to bring the seizure to an end. Once again, the seizure predominantly affected Sophie's right side. On this occasion, the seizure lasted for a total of 35 minutes. 
Sophie was investigated with a brain scan, lumbar puncture and with blood tests, all of which returned normal. Her third admission occurred at the age of six months. On this occasion, Sophie had been mildly unwell with a bit of a cough and a runny nose. Her parents were really careful, keeping a check on her temperature, and reported that it had only been very mildly raised. Sophie went into a further seizure, this time predominantly affecting the left side of her body. On this occasion, the seizure did not respond to initial therapy in the emergency department, and she required treatment with an anaesthetic agent, resulting in the need for intubation and ventilation in intensive care. The most recent two fits prior to me seeing her had not been one-sided, but had affected both sides of Sophie's body. On the most recent occasion, there had been absolutely no evidence of fever or illness at all prior to the fit. After each of the seizures, despite being very prolonged, Sophie recovered very well, and within 24 hours was pretty much back to her normal self. On direct questioning, Sophie's parents reported that they had noticed other types of events, which had not resulted in her being taken to hospital. They noticed a number of episodes where Sophie would go a little bit dazed and would develop an abnormal position of either her right or her left hand. Each of these episodes lasted only a few seconds, and there were no after-effects. In addition, the family noticed that from time to time, Sophie would give a brief jump as though she had been startled. I examined Sophie and found her to be completely healthy. She was making completely normal developmental progress. I reviewed all the investigations that had previously been done and noted that her brain scan was normal and that EEGs which had been performed did not show any significant abnormalities. It was clear nevertheless that Sophie did have epilepsy and from the history I was pretty sure that she had a particular type of epilepsy known as Dravet syndrome. Let me tell you a little bit about Dravet syndrome. Dravet syndrome was first described in 1978 by a French pediatric neurologist called Charlotte Dravet. She called the epilepsy severe myoclonic epilepsy of infancy. Over time, it became clear that myoclonic seizures, or brief jerks, do not occur in all children with this disorder, and the name was changed to Dravet syndrome in 1989. Dravet syndrome is a very severe early-onset epilepsy which presents in infancy. Children with this epilepsy typically have prolonged seizures, often triggered by fever or by illness. The seizures may be unilateral and often affect different sides of the body on different occasions, or they may affect both sides of the body. The early seizures are typically convulsive, but towards the end of the first year and in subsequent years, other seizure types are typically seen including blank spells, which are called absences, non-convulsive status epilepticus, which we discussed in episode 6, myoclonic seizures or jerks, and more subtle focal seizures. Children with this form of epilepsy typically develop normally in the first year of life, but as seizures become increasingly severe, their development slows, and the gap between them and other children of the same age gradually widens. As children get older, they often exhibit significant intellectual disability and other developmental problems such as autism and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder become apparent. In later years, children may develop problems with their walking and become very unsteady on their feet, 
to the extent that some will require a wheelchair. Treatment of this epilepsy is extremely difficult. Typically, it's very resistant to anti-epileptic drug therapy. Importantly, also, certain types of epilepsy medication can make the epilepsy worse, and recognizing this form of epilepsy is extremely important for that reason, among others. Since I met Sophie in 1990, there have been an explosion of new anti-epileptic drugs available. But despite this, this form of epilepsy continues to be extremely difficult to treat. In 2001, it was identified that most children with Dravet syndrome had a mutation in a gene called SCN1A. This is a gene which codes for a subunit of the sodium channel. If we think about nerve cells, there's a potential difference across the cell membrane of these cells, effectively meaning that they behave like a miniature battery. Positive ions, such as sodium, potassium and calcium, are held on one side of the membrane and negative ions such as chloride and bicarbonate are maintained on the other side. When a chemical message to fire off is received by nerve cells, then these ions move across the cell membrane, leading to an electrical discharge. Specific ions only move through specific channels. Thus, sodium ions only move through sodium channels. Dravet syndrome occurs because of an abnormality of sodium channels. It's now been shown that around 85% of people with Dravet syndrome have a mutation in the SCN1A gene, although other genes can cause a very similar type of epilepsy. When I first met Sophie, we didn't know about the genetic abnormality in Dravet syndrome although we did know that in a small proportion of families there would be more than one child with Dravet syndrome, and that genetic mechanisms were therefore important. However, the clinical picture was well recognised, and I was confident about the diagnosis. I had to discuss the nature of the epilepsy and the likely consequences for Sophie. What I didn't expect was that Sophie's parents would be so grateful for the diagnosis and explanation. They told me that having an understanding of the diagnosis was hugely important, and this actually allowed them to meet other families with the same problem and to plan for the future. We worked hard together to treat Sophie's epilepsy and to ensure that she had appropriate support in terms of her development as well as medically. The family were really upset when I told them I was leaving Glasgow at the end of the year, and they gave me a small memento of Sophie. I still have that 30 years later, and I still remember Sophie and her parents, although of course she and they will be very different now. In the second six months of 1990, there was a shortage of senior registrar provision for the neonatal unit at York Hill, and for reasons I still don't fully understand, I was seconded for neonatology for that period. You may remember that after my time in neonatology as a registrar, I had been so sure that I would never do neonates again. And yet, here I found myself on the neonatal unit once again. I used the time to upskill in neonatal neurology. Then, as now, neonatologists rarely sought help from neurologists. And the time passed fairly quickly, particularly since I still maintained my daytime commitment to neurology. Towards the end of the year, I started to think about the next steps I would take in neurology. I was keen to experience neurology in a different unit, and I took the advantage of a contact in Sydney, Australia. 
I managed to arrange an attachment in neurology at the Camperdown Children's Hospital in Sydney for a year, commencing in the middle of the following year. I realised also that I needed to start thinking about obtaining a consultant post. I was extremely keen to remain in Glasgow, but there seemed little opportunity for a further post there. John Stevenson, my consultant there, assured me that there would be a further post in due course, but of course could not give any undertaking that I would be successful in obtaining it. I thought that it would be useful to gain some experience in consultant interviews before such a post was advertised. So when a consultant post in Sheffield was advertised, I decided to apply for it. Prior to the interview, I came down to Sheffield to meet people in the unit. My abiding memory of that visit was that there was a massive snowstorm and the city almost completely shut down. Somehow I managed to navigate the thick snow-covered streets, and Sheffield is a very hilly city. I really don't know how my little car kept going up the hills. The interview was in March. I came to interview primarily to gain interview experience and with no real intention of taking a consultant post in Sheffield. However, when I got to the interview, I found myself in competition with a local senior registrar and a candidate from Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. This really got my competitive juices going, and rather than going into the interview for experience, I approached it wanting to be successful. I went in first. In those days, the usual form was to wait for the outcome of all the interviews and not to leave. At the end of the third interview, we all waited together, and after about 20 minutes, I was called in and offered the post, which I accepted. I asked about the attachment in Sydney and was encouraged to carry on with this, however, for three months, not a year. I drove back to Glasgow that evening, convinced that I'd made the worst decision of my life. In reality, though, I realised it was the best career decision I ever made. It was really sad winding up my time in Glasgow. Saying goodbye to so many friends was a real sorrow, and the prospect of a long-distance relationship with my girlfriend was heart-wrenching, particularly since we were to be ten and a half thousand miles apart for the next three months. In the next episode, we'll meet some of the brilliant children I met in Australia. I hope you'll join me. In the meantime, I'm really grateful to those of you who have posted reviews of my podcast, and I'm glad that people seem to be enjoying it. Any further reviews would be gratefully received. Particularly, I'd be keen to know what you like about the podcast and what you don't like. If you go to my website, childrensdoctortales.co.uk, and go to the episode links on the homepage, you can share these via your own Facebook pages. There's a link available. Additionally, I have a Facebook page at Tales of a Children's Doctor, all one word. And I'd be grateful if you'd go there and follow the page and like it if you want to. Many thanks for listening and I look forward to talking to you again next week. This has been Tales of a Children's Doctor. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Please come back for the next episode where I'll be telling more stories of amazing children and their families. Goodbye. Goodbye.